from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Michael Coolwine. Michael teaches economics at Pomona College in California. In this interview, we talk about the economic teachings of the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Michael where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. My father was in the military until I was about 10 years old. And so we moved around a lot. Even though I was born in Wisconsin, we were moving almost every year. I lived in California and Maryland and Germany for three years. And then finally back in the States in Delaware. But when my father got out of the military and, and went back to school on the GI Bill, he became a, a high school social studies teacher. And we settled in Wilmington, Delaware. So I was about 10 at the time. My parents basically spent the next few decades there. My dad passed away a few years ago, but my mom's still there. So I guess I would have to say that Delaware is kind of where I grew up. I went to high school at a boarding school in Delaware. It was about 45 minutes away from Wilmington. So I did that when I was about 14. But from the ages of 10 to about 18, I was in Delaware. We were middle-class suburban family. And I have a brother and a sister. I'm the oldest in the family. In some ways, kind of religious households. My parents are, they were Episcopalians. And so we went to church every Sunday. I was confirmed in the Episcopal church. And my dad used to uh, speak uh, during services used to read from the Bible. So I guess it was a religious upbringing, although during the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday, I guess we didn't talk about religion that much. My parents were, you know, very loving, so I've, I feel pretty fortunate in that respect. They were kind of strict. I remember when my fifth grade homeroom class uh, went around singing Christmas carols before Christmas because it was actually during the season of Advent in the Episcopal Church instead of the Christmas season, my mom discouraged me from, from joining them. So I didn't go Christmas caroling. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I missed that. What, what was the reason? The season before Christmas is called Advent right. in, in the Episcopal Church. Right. And that's actually sober, serious season where it's, I, I think it might even be penitential, I'm not sure, but... It's not really a celebratory period. So you don't really celebrate Christmas before it happens, at least according to the Episcopal calendar. So anyway, so my mom uh, discouraged me from, from participating in that, and so, you know, because I didn't want to upset my parents, I, I didn't. So they were, they were kind of strict in that sense. Why did you end up going to boarding school? You know, actually... My mother came from a large family. She had seven 
brothers and sisters, and they pretty much all went to boarding schools, I think, but she didn't get the opportunity. And so she decided from when she was pretty young that she wanted her children to have that opportunity if they wanted it. It wasn't pushed on us, but they encouraged us to look into boarding schools and to think about applying. One day, one weekend, we drove down to Middletown, Delaware, which, as I mentioned, was about 45 minutes away, and just toured the campus, and it was just gorgeous. We were looking at St. Andrew's School, and that was a school founded by the DuPonts during the Great Depression. It's beautiful. I mean, it sits up on a hill. It overlooks a lake. It's a very rich school, and so they had beautiful buildings and nice dorms and great athletic facilities. And So I was blown away. I mean, it was just the most beautiful school I'd ever seen. And we spoke with some of the students there, and they spoke really positively about it, about how great it was to go to a small school. There were only 200 students at the whole school. And how you know, terrific it was to get to know your teachers and to have small classes. And so I was sold. I thought, wow, wow, if I could get into this school and go, I mean, that would be pretty amazing. And I was lucky enough to get in. And I went, and and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Yeah, I just got a, I just got an amazing education there. I think, and you know, it's it's kind of interesting too because I had a good friend in junior high, who uh, I always thought was way smarter than I was, <laughs> and he stayed in Wilmington and went to the local public high school, and did very well there, and actually ended up going to Harvard. But he dropped out because it was really hard. And I think it was probably because he, he hadn't been pushed in high school. I had to work really hard. <laughs> it was a pretty demanding school, but I, I did feel like I was pushed and I was pretty ready for college. And what were your interests while you were in high school? I was kind of generally interested in lots of different subjects. I liked history. Science was interesting. I enjoyed math. English was fun. I didn't really have one favorite. And what did you do after high school? Well, I, I went to, on to college. I went to Swarthmore College, which is a very good liberal arts college outside of Philadelphia. Got, a, again, a, just a terrific education. I was surrounded by really amazing students, really curious students, students who were really there to learn and love to learn. It was a very exciting, stimulating environment there. And what did you major in and graduate as? Economics. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> now, how come you end up picking uh, economics? I began, actually, by thinking that I might want to be a political science major, because political science seemed like it dealt with some really important issues in our society. And so I started taking political science classes there. The first class that I took, I enjoyed very much. It was kind of an overview. But the second class that I took, which was on the the American political system, I didn't enjoy nearly as much. And one of the reasons was that there seemed like there were a lot of different theories in political science, but it wasn't obvious how to test between them. It wasn't obvious which one was right and which one was wrong. It kind of depended on how you viewed history. And I found it a little frustrating that it was difficult to decide which theory was more persuasive. 
So even though I, I, I love sort of the topics in political science, I, I was frustrated a little bit. Some of the theories were hard to understand. They were fairly nuanced. So I found it difficult, actually, uh, to do well in that field. And at the same time, I was taking classes in engineering. I, I didn't even know what engineering was, so I just signed up for an engineering class my first semester in college. But I thought it was kind of fun, um, in part because engineering is, is fairly mathematical. There are right answers to engineering problems. And I turned out to be pretty good at that. So I enjoyed the, the mathematical quantitative aspect of engineering. But the aspect of it that I wasn't that interested in was the actual engineering. <laughs> so I just didn't have that much interest in learning how to build a bridge or, or a building or put a, an electric circuit together. I was, I'm glad that there are people out there that enjoy that and are good at it, and I, I know that our society depends on that, but it just didn't seem like engineering was grappling with some of society's really deep problems. And so I, I ended up taking economics, and I didn't even take an economics class until my sophomore year, but for me it was just the perfect combination of political science and engineering. It, it was de dealing with important social issues like poverty and inflation and unemployment and income inequality and growth, but it was also very mathematical. It was pretty rigorous, and I was pretty good at working with the models and solving the models. So for me, it was it was just the perfect marriage of my two previous interests. I've enjoyed it ever since. So what did you do after college? Well, I went to work in uh, Washington, D.C. for a year. I was a research assistant at the Brookings Institution, which is a moderate to liberal think tank in D.C. There are a bunch of senior fellows there. It, it focuses primarily on economics, politics, international relations. And so they have senior fellows in, in all of those areas. Defense was another group there. They had a group studying the military. I was picked to work with two senior fellows, Barry Bosworth and, and Bob Hartman, just to basically uh, serve as an RA and to help them with their research. And so I would do literature searches for them and do some simple calculations and fact-check some of the things that they wrote and retrieve documents. It was really fun because the senior fellows that are there are very smart and, and well-known. You, you see them often being interviewed on CNN and major newspapers. So they're highly respected. You know, we're in D.C., and there, was, there were a lot of important policies to be talking about at the time, and they were discussing them, and it was just really a, a fascinating year to spend in D.C. and to see them do what they did. So that's really where I decided that I wanted to continue in economics and to go to graduate school in economics when I observed some economists, some people with PhDs, and observed what they did, and it just seemed fascinating to me. So I went back to school. That's right. I applied to graduate school that year and ended up going uh, up to MIT. So I was in the Boston area for the next five, six years. That was a very intense experience. Uh, there's really nothing quite like graduate school where you just focus you know, mm. on, on your field. It was a bit of a shock when I got there, just adjusting to all the math and the advanced theory. But again, I was surrounded by terrific students. 
some good professors, and again, found it to be a, a very stimulating place. I just learned an incredible amount. So even though it wasn't what I would call easy, <laughs> I was working most evenings and, and weekends, I would say. Still, I was just reading an incredible amount and, and learning a lot. Again, I got a, a pretty amazing education, I'd say. The econ department there is pretty remarkable. Um, three of the first four professors that I had for microeconomics, I had either won a Nobel Prize or won one later after I left the school. So there were some brilliant professors there. And then after you graduated, what did you do? So I, I knew that having spent my college years at Swarthmore College, I, I knew that I wanted to go someplace similar to that. I wanted to go somewhere where they really valued teaching. I had done some teaching in, in graduate school at, at MIT, and I liked it a lot. And I seemed to be pretty good at it. But it's also time-consuming to be a good teacher. And I wanted to go someplace that valued that. And so I was primarily looking at, at small colleges. I, I also interviewed with some big universities. But my first choice was to go to a good small college. And Pomona is a, a terrific small college. And so when they offered me the job, I, I, I leapt at it. I called all the other schools that I was talking to and said, I've, got, I've gotten my, my dream job, um, so I'm, <laughs> I'm withdrawing from the market. That was it. That was 23 years ago. When you had left the Brookings Institute to go to MIT, uh-huh. and you said, you know, I, economics is where I want to continue my studies. Was teaching part of that equation right at that point, or did you determine that later on when you were getting your graduate degree? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that I wanted to probably end up at a, at a liberal arts college, but since I hadn't done any teaching yet, I really didn't know how good I would be at it or how much I would enjoy. So I'd, I'd say it was really my experience in graduate school, teaching some classes. You know, I, I both served as, as a teaching assistant uh, for, for some professors there, and then I got my own sections of, of some of the principal's classes. And that's really where I dis- discovered my love of teaching. So that's, that's really what convinced me, to go somewhere like Pomona, which emphasizes teaching. So at what point, Mike, did you run into the Baha'i faith? That was in Boston. Uh, that was at MIT. I met my, my wife, my future wife there. She was a secretary working in the economics department. Her name is Nancy Scott, and she was a Baha'i. She was a relatively new Baha'i at the time that I met her. Uh, we met in 1986. I think she had just been a Baha'i for a few years at that point. When we started to get to know each other and to go out, she told me about the Baha'i faith and we went to a couple of firesides, and so I started to learn about the faith, and she gave me some books to read, and so I started investigating the faith. When we got married, and actually I guess we met in 85, we got married in 86. I was still an Episcopalian at the time, and so we had an Episcopal service, and then we had a Baha'i service. I got to know the Baha'i community in Cambridge, Massachusetts pretty well. What was your initial reaction to the Baha'i faith? You know, I was, I was attracted to it because of the teachings and the principles. I, I like the principles a lot. You know, I've been a lifelong Christian and always sort of considered Jesus Christ to be 
very different than, say, anybody else in history. You know, even, say, Moses or Muhammad or Buddha had always considered Jesus to be special, that he was, you know, the Son of God, and the Bible, you know, was special because it was basically his word that would have been written by his disciples. And so I had a pretty, pretty strong attachment to that, uh, even though I wasn't that active in the Episcopal Church. But I guess deep down, I had a pretty strong attachment still to those Christian ideas. When I was introduced to the Baha'i Faith, I, I was attracted to the readings and the central figures in the faith. But I had a difficult time kind of equating, say, you know, the different manifestations of God, equating them to Jesus. Jesus Christ just somehow seemed to be kind of a step above everybody else, something different. And so I thought that the Baha'i writings were beautiful, and there were a lot of very nice sentiments in them, but it, it just didn't seem quite the same to me, quite as moving or, or inspired or divinely. The source didn't, didn't seem to be sort of the same divine source as, uh, say, the Bible. So... For a number of years, considered myself to be a friend of the faith, and I would accompany my wife to holy days and firesides sometimes, and social get-togethers with Baha'is. And I always found the Baha'i community to be very welcoming, a very warm, loving community. So I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed spending time with them, but I just wasn't wasn't ready to make the plunge to become a Baha'i myself. What eventually changed your mind? I was, it was a combination of, of just reading more about the faith, I think, and meditating on, you know, on some of the writings and the starting of a family. In 1994, my wife and I adopted our first child, Duncan, and two years later we adopted a second child, Gregory. And when you have children, you have to start thinking about what you're going to tell them about what you believe. And you're going to have to decide how to raise them. And up until then, I had, I had been attracted to the faith, but had been pretty content to kind of remain Christian. And I decided that for our children's sake, that I really needed to decide, you know, whether I believed that Baha'u'llah was who he said he was, the manifestation of God. Then I really started studying the writings in earnest. It was really soon after that, I guess it was 1997, so it was one year after we had adopted our second child, that I decided that, yes, I did believe that Baha'u'llah was the, the promised messenger for this age, and that the Baha'i writings were divinely inspired and were equivalent to say, the Bible. So it, it took me a while. It was probably about 11 or 12 years between when I first heard about the faith and when I eventually declared. You can probably blame that on my being a professor, and professors are taught to critically analyze everything that they read, and so I... <laughs> I was somewhat skeptical at, at first about all the all the teachings in the faith, but eventually I I was won over. Well, actually, that's consistent with the Baha'i teaching of independent investigation of truth. 
the that's Baha- right. Yeah, the Baha'i faith encourages critical thinking. Yeah, and it was it was good to know that some people like William Sears also took quite a while before they eventually declared, and so I, I didn't feel too bad about mm-hmm. right. <laughs> about the fact that it took me so long. But part of it was that I I, I was fairly happy, I guess, as a Christian. I mean, I I, I really like the fact that you know that Jesus you know had a this is a ministry on earth, and it was meant to help mankind, and that we had a loving God, and that we were supposed to pray, and I found that comforting. So I was all fairly content with that. So it wasn't as though I had sort of had a spiritual crisis. But I I did appreciate the fact that the the Baha'i faith did want people to ask questions, and to do their own investigation, not to take people's word for it, but to really think independently. Um, yeah, that was one of the things that, that I really liked about the faith. What was it about staying as a Christian that you felt wasn't compatible with starting to raise your children in a religious life? I guess I was aware of the fact that there would be disunity in the family. If I was a Christian and Nancy was a Baha'i, and our children would get different messages from the two of us, conflicting messages about some things. You know, Christians don't accept Baha'u'llah as a prophet of God. I was worried about that. Um, I, re- I really thought that it would be better for there to be unity in the family, for us to talk to our children and to teach them with consistent teachings, you know, in, with sort of one voice. Yeah, my younger son, Duncan, when he was three, he was started to become curious why I stayed home when they all went to feast. You know, it was because I wasn't a Baha'i. So, so that really kind of pushed me to really make up my mind how I felt about faith. You know, children have a way of of doing that. I mean, they kind of force you to grow up a little. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I have to say that up up until then, I had been somewhat agnostic about the the Baha'i faith. I wasn't quite ready to accept Baha'u'llah as as a manifestation of God, but I wasn't quite ready to say definitely that he was not. And so I was kind of straddling that fence. And having children really forces you to try to make up your mind to decide what you really think about some of these critical issues in life. So that was the push, I guess. That that pushed me to eventually make up my mind. And once I did that, then I decided to embrace the faith. The Baha'i faith has certain teachings regarding economics. I was wondering which teachings may have impacted your perspective in economics after you started studying the Baha'i faith? Well, you know, I would, I would say that the, the, the teachings and the Baha'i writings were pretty consistent, the economic teachings, pretty consistent with my views at the time. One of the main ones, obviously, is the elimination of extremes of poverty and, and wealth. And that was something that I cared about. I mean, I, I, I too felt that that was an injustice in the world. Now, there are a lot of very poor people in the world. The gap in living standards between, say, Americans and many people in the developing world is just huge. 
some countries where GDP per capita is literally on the order of like one hundredth what it is in the United States. So I had been concerned for many years about this disparity in income and wealth, about the poverty that we see in the world. The Baha'i teachings that it's you know that something must be done to address these inequalities. They were very congruent with my thoughts on that issue. That's just one example. The Baha'i teachings about profit sharing were intriguing. I'd actually worked with a professor at MIT, Martin Weitzman, who wrote a book on profit sharing. And he called it the profit economy, I think. And I was a research assistant for him at the time, so I did a little bit of background research for him. And in that book, he argued that profit sharing is a really positive thing for the economy. You know, he re- repeated some of the arguments that have already been advanced on why profit sharing is beneficial. It generally encourages loyalty among workers. It encourages them to work, work harder. It reduces turnover. It's good for employee morale. So it has, it has a lot of those positive effects. So he talked about that some in his book, but, but then he also went beyond that and talked about how it can have pretty positive macro uh, effect on the economy, that it can actually help an economy recover more quickly from recessions and even avoid recessions to begin with. The argument there is that under profit sharing, wages become more flexible than they do normally. So if the economy does start to enter a recession because, say, demand has fallen in the economy. As prices start to fall, that actually reduces wage rates some. And the lower wages become, the more attractive workers are to firms. And so they have more of an incentive to keep them on as opposed to laying them off. And they also allow firms to lower prices even further, which helps to re-stimulate demand. So he argued that profit sharing and tying wages and incomes to profits actually could help reduce the severity of recessions and speed up their recovery. When the New York Times found out about this, they they had an editorial on it, and they, they called it the best idea since Keynes. But in any case, in the Baha'i faith, profit sharing is encouraged. So there were just several aspects of the faith that were very compatible with economic ideas that I already had. Are there other Baha'i principles related to economics? You know, almost all of them are, which is really fascinating. Uh, I'll just give you one example. You know, the right of, of all people to receive a decent education Obviously, this has certain spiritual benefits. Education is also a really powerful force in the economy. Economists call it human capital. But the more human capital people have, the more productive they are. There's even work that suggests that boosting educational attainment in poor countries is a really powerful way to raise living standards there and to help those countries to develop. There's a book that was written by William Balmall, who's a a uh, professor at Princeton and a economist at Princeton, a highly respected person. He argued that actually secondary education, providing basically some high school education to workers, is really critical for helping developing countries to grow. And he argued that actually that mattered more than 
primary education because the secondary education that you really learn sort of the skills that, that are necessary to use modern technology. So he, he went out and he did, did some tests of this and, and found some statistical evidence that the secondary education was really important for economic development. So it turns out that education, universal education, is actually really important in helping people to learn skills and to become more productive and to raise living standards and to reduce poverty. Is there another example of a Baha'i principle that can be seen as an economic principle? The oneness of humanity. In several different ways, this can have really positive economic effects. One of them is, you know, if we really view everyone in the world as our brothers and our sisters, as all members of the same human family, then it's really hard to start wars and to maintain conflicts between countries. It's clearly inconsistent with, with loving your neighbor. Baha'is believe that once people realize that all of humanity is one, and once they realize that all the religions essentially agree and that there's only one God, you know, we believe that the lesser peace is going to come first and then the greater peace. All of this would just be so useful to the economy. I mean, we, we spend so much money on the military. You know, in the United States alone, we spend more than $500 billion a year on paying people to fight, to build tanks and ships, and it's just a tremendous expense. It's a large chunk of the federal budget. Just imagine what we could do if we diverted those resources to, say, education or health care, housing, or green technology, renewable energy sources. I mean, we could just do so much with that money. And the Baha'i writings talk about the utter waste of money and resources on military expenditures. Abdu'l-Baha has written about this. So really embracing the oneness of humanity would just be so useful, I think, for humanity. I mean, if we could, if we could really end war in the world, I mean, that by itself would, would just have huge effect, I think, on living standards in many parts of the world. That's one way. Really embracing the oneness of humanity also encourages us to move beyond you know, any racial prejudices that we have. Racism is really inefficient from an economic standpoint. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense if you have talented people, people with so much potential, to not allow them, say, to tap into that potential and to develop it and to become really productive members of society. I mean, it, it's just a complete waste. Countries, uh, societies that are more open, more tolerant, that give equal opportunity to all, tend to grow faster. I mean, they're, they're just more productive and affluent. That's just one more example of, of an economic benefit from important spiritual principle in the faith. The Baha'i faith refers to the solution to the economic problem requiring a spiritual solution. Can, right. Can you explain what that Baha'i concept means? My understanding of that is you really need sort of a spiritual transformation in the world if you want to overcome all of humanity's economic problems. To some extent, as long as people are still motivated by greed and prejudice and anger and distrust, there are going to be significant economic problems in the world. You can have the best economic system 
you know, you can pass laws and regulations, but in, in, until you actually get down to the individual level and change people's hearts, I think it's really hard to overcome these problems. There are good policies out there. Don't, don't misinterpret. I think that it, policy makes a difference. But there are also some problems that policy by itself can't really completely fix. I'll just give you one example. Corruption. Corruption is a huge problem in certain parts of the world. There are some governments that are very corrupt. Bribery has become an, an better part of just the way business is conducted. Corruption is really harmful for economies uh, to the extent that government officials require that businesses pay bribes. It's, it's like an added tax on businesses and entrepreneurship. If the bribes are large enough, it can significantly depress economic activity in a country. It can discourage people from starting new businesses. It can discourage investments in an existing business if you know that most of the profits are just going to be confiscated, basically, by corrupt government officials. So it can have a really depressing effect on an economy. But it's really hard to get rid of corruption if you <laughs> don't appeal to people's hearts in some sense. If people believe that, that bribes and, and corruption and taking advantage of other people are an acceptable way to live your life, then it's very difficult to stamp out. To some extent, I, I think sort of the success of economies like our own and in Western Europe, to some extent that, that success has been predicated on a fairly strong moral code that people embrace. It's something that you don't talk about very much in economics, but people have to be trustworthy for, for transactions to take place, for, for trades to occur, and for investment to take place. It's something that we just take for granted. But in, in many parts of the world, that you, you can't. Even in like our own country, obviously there's still a fair amount of, maybe corruption is, is the wrong word for it, but... Money influencing policy. Yeah, just people sort of allowing greed to determine their actions. The recent financial crisis that we went through is perhaps a good example of that. I'm quite sure that there are people in, involved, you know, the, in, the entire housing bubble and the making of subprime mortgage loans. I'm, I'm quite sure that there were some people involved in that that knew that these were bad things to do, you know, that it was going to blow up in our face uh, sometime. You don't give money to people that don't have the money to repay it. But because there was an economic incentive to do that, uh, they did it. And the result was that you know, we had a, this incredible bubble, and housing prices went way up for several years and then crashed. And it, it pushed us into the worst recession we've had since the Great Depression. You know, if, if people had been more moral, if they'd been more ethical, if, if they had been more concerned with doing the right thing instead of making money and had been less materialistic and, and more focused on spiritual principles, I think that might have helped to avoid that crisis. And I, I think it could go a long way to helping governments in the world, less than honest governments, reform themselves and to really become productive, useful governments. That's just one example, I think. But, you know, I'll give you just one more example. The equality of men and women. Baha'is are, are, are taught that, you know, because men, men and women are, are 
fundamentally equal, that, that they should be given the same opportunities. That doesn't happen in, in many parts of the world. Women are strongly discouraged from, from working, from getting an education. They don't have much say in the family. Again, that's just incredibly inefficient because, obviously, uh, women have so much to offer the world. You know, Baha'is believe that until the equality of men and women is realized in the world that we won't be able to solve problems such as war. One of the things that some of the more, more successful developing countries have learned is that by increasing opportunities, economic opportunities for women, that that's a really powerful way to generate growth in their economy. In some of the, the success stories in Eastern Asia, the so-called Asian tigers in Singapore and Hong Kong and South Korea and Taiwan, one of the things that they did was to allow women to work um, and to get an education. And it dramatically increased output in these countries and raised incomes. Once women got an education, and in some cases, uh, you know, when they were working, they had more status in the family, and they were able to play a greater role in ensuring that the children were receiving the nutrition that they needed and the health care. You know, educating women is just an incredibly powerful force for economic and social change in society. These Eastern Asian countries have tapped into that. They've discovered that. It also reminds me of the institutions being created to provide microloans to women to start some small business in developing countries. Yeah, absolutely. These micro microloans started, I guess, uh, by the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, and now they've spread everywhere. But that's right, a lot of those loans go to women. They've discovered that a very high percentage of them are repaid. It's really made a difference the lives of these women. Especially in increasing their status because they've become independent of men that may have suppressed their capabilities. Yeah, well, if you're earning real money, I mean, that, <laughs> that makes a difference, you know. Um, of, of course, you're going to be treated with more respect. There was an interesting quote a number of years ago now by Larry Summers, who may have heard of just because he was one of Obama's main economic advisors. Um, for a while, he was president of Harvard University. Now he's uh, just a professor back at Harvard. But anyway, he said in one of his papers that educating women is the investment with the highest rate of return in the developing world. That more than anything else you can do to help poor countries, educating women is, has the highest payoff, which I thought was just really interesting but completely consistent with the Baha'i writings. So you've enjoyed teaching all these 20 years. <laughs> I have. <laughs> yeah, I love teaching, and yeah. I'm fortunate enough to have some of the, the greatest students in the country. What would you say is the greatest gift that you receive when, by teaching? You know, it's, it's just seeing them engage these issues. Just getting students kind of excited about economics and thinking about what we can do to address problems of poverty and inequality and unemployment, just getting them to think more deeply about some of these issues and getting excited about it. For me, that's the main reward. These students are so smart and curious, and just getting them really interested in economics is 
just a lot of fun. It's something I don't I don't ever tire of. Yeah. And I've been teaching principles of macroeconomics for 23 years. And some professors really get tired of teaching the same course over and over again, and I, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> because it's new students every time, and the light bulb is going on for the first time every time I teach it. So it's in that sense, it's always always new. Plus, there's always something new in the economy to talk about. <laughs> Especially lately, huh? Yeah, oh boy, yeah. It's just a great time to be talking about economics. Is there anything, Michael, that you haven't done yet that you or want to do but haven't quite done it yet? I certainly enjoy doing some more traveling, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Now, there are parts of the world that I haven't been to. And about five years ago, my wife and I and our two kids went down to Honduras, and that was just an amazing experience getting to know the local Baha'i community and Working with them, and my wife ended up teaching spelling at uh, a school down there. I was on sabbatical. So that was a really amazing experience for us and for our children. Having a similar experience somewhere else in the world would be great. But I have to say that I'm really very happy where I am. Pomona College is a wonderful place to teach, and Southern California is a really great place to live. It's a very wonderfully diverse area. My image of Honduras is it's a very impoverished country. Mm-hmm. When you were there, did you experience that? We, we did. Yeah, we we were living in a, in a medium-sized town, town of about 50,000 uh, in the mountains uh, uh, with the name Guadapeque. It was poor. I mean, Honduras is a, is a poor country. It's supposedly the second or third poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and, and Guadapeque is, is not a wealthy town at all. So we did get to experience that poverty firsthand. And that was an eye-opener, I know, for our kids and and for us uh, as well. Now, what do you imagine, Michael, it's keeping Honduras from climbing out of poverty? You know, that's a, a good question. Um, I, I mean, I think several of the things that we've already talked about uh, are probably involved. You know, the education system there probably could be improved our kids were, were going to the school that Nancy was teaching at, and it's, it's a private school, and it's, it's a good school, but I'm guessing that, that the public school system there is, uh, wasn't nearly as good. Basic investments and in infrastructure, like roads, you know, electricity, water, would probably go a long ways. We only got water twice a week, I think it was, and you'd have to store it in a, in a big barrel, basically, and, and a big vat and and then use it during the rest of the week. You know, we had a lot of power outages. The roads were in pretty bad shape during the rainy season because a lot of them were dirt roads. I was just thinking that what keeps a country from improving its in- infrastructure? I mean, Honduras has been poor for so many years. Yeah. You know, they do have a, a gang problem down there, so they're problems with, with just kind of maintaining security. I'm guessing that corruption is a problem in, in the government. I know that we did have some interactions with government officials, and there's an incredible amount of red tape. Um, mm-hmm. If, if uh, we didn't have some friends that had come along to help us kind of navigate uh, the bureaucracy, it's, uh, I'm not sure we would have been very successful. Even just getting something like a driver's license turned out to be incredibly complicated. <laughs> I'm sure that 
on a government uh, government that's really responsive to to the public uh, would help. You know, they have they have racism problems there. I mean, there's a, a group of, of people that are primarily of African descent. You know, they were originally slaves, um, and they're very dark. And there's a lot of prejudice against them versus lighter-skinned uh, Hondurans that are more, uh, you know, Spanish, more Spanish blood in them. You know, there's definitely prejudice in the society. How integrated is the Baha'i community compared to other institutions there? I think very integrated. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it's a, it was a very welcoming group in Zagotapeque, and, and they had people of different ethnic backgrounds that belonged to it, so it was diverse. You know, like most Baha'i communities, uh, very warm and supportive. So I think that they were pretty successful, and they, they did a lot to reach out to all, all the groups in society. I want to thank you very much, Michael, for sharing your story. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Coolwine, an economics teacher at Pomona College for 23 years. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.